0: Good morning. Um, I feel a little bit like this is a homecoming, not um, because I was uh, directly a part of Westerly Road, but my older sister Tina uh, was a part of the congregation in uh, the late 80s and into the early 90s, uh, also was on staff for a few years. And she and her family now serve in uh, Ethiopia as missionaries. And uh, she says hello And I also just want to say thank you for the tremendous role that um, this church has played in the history of the Lausanne movement. Um, The third Lausanne Congress in Cape Town, South Africa, brought together nearly 5,000 leaders from all around the world, uh, from more than 200 nations. And um, this church was uh, probably our closest church partner Uh, in the entire uh, historic event. It was the largest and most globally representative gathering of church leaders in 2,000 years history of Christianity. So thank you for that. And we're very excited in these days ahead because we're really uh, in the early days of envisioning and planning and preparing and praying for uh, Lausanne 4. So I would invite you to... Um, please uh, pray with us and to partner with us as well. I want to invite uh, um, just Dr. Colleen Dorado to just sh- stand. Uh, Colleen is uh, our director for our Lausanne Global Council, and she helps to bring our strongest relationships, partnerships, and connections, uh, and really see um, uh, churches and organizations around the world, flagship churches and organizations like Stone Hill. Uh, being connected, being mobilized, and um, doing more together than we could possibly do apart, so if you have any questions about Lausanne or ways that you would love to get involved and 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 be a part, uh, please see dr dorado after after the service. Um, let me invite you to stand as we read the Word of God i 'm reading from uh, page seven seven five Uh, Jonah chapter 4, but let me read uh, also the last verse of uh, chapter 3. So page 775, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, to the end of the book. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 100,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Go ahead and be seated. Uh, As Pastor Jin mentioned, uh, my wife Pearl and I have five children. Um, I always wanted to be prolific at something. Uh, Having so many children has made my wife and me um, almost professional-level children's book readers. And I still remember uh, when our oldest, Hannah, was young, and we... Uh, I would put her on my lap, and we would read Jonah. And I would read, Jonah was a man who believed in God. God called Jonah to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah disobeyed. Now, some children's Bible stories can be very helpful. Others, not so much so. And many of the children's stories about Jonah and the marine biological embellishment of the big whale no doubt heard much more commonly from 1851 onward after the publishing of Moby Dick uh, are not so helpful Uh, the telling of Jonah's story often in these books includes about uh, elements about how Jonah was a special man with a special job and he had to go to an especially bad city and he especially did not want to go there because it was scary to go to such a bad place with such bad people and after some hiding and seeking, and children, remember, you can never hide from God. Jonah obeyed and went to the city of Nineveh, and they believed in God. Yay, Jonah's a hero. Bedtime. And that's kind of the common theme of children's Bible stories, right? The prophets are heroes. Kings are heroes, especially little David. The apostles are heroes. So, little girls and little boys, be a hero. Be a good little Christian hero. Now the parents are thinking, honey, we need to throw out all our Bible storybooks. But you actually don't. They can be redeemed. And here's how. Ready? Here's how you correct each of those colorful, foamy, sticky, but slightly misguided children's Christian books, talk with your kids, talk with them about how God is the hero of that story and every story. Now today we're looking at Jonah chapter 4, which is the climax of the book. In fact, we don't even get any reason for Jonah's disobedience and attempted escape from God until chapter 4. All we see is uh, chapter 1, God asking Jonah to do something, to preach against the city of Nineveh because of its wickedness. Uh, Sounds like a pretty reasonable request that God could make to a prophet. Jonah, though, runs off for dear life without any explanation. A big fish swallows Jonah until he dramatically vomits him out. Then in chapter 3, Jonah obeys, kind of. The people and the king repent and believe in God, and God has compassion on the Assyrians and doesn't destroy them. Cut, print, that's a wrap. Now, that's pretty much how children's Bible storybooks have treated Jonah. And if we're honest, that's pretty close to how many of us have also treated Jonah, as if chapter 4 didn't exist. But it does And what we have here is a sharp contrast between one who is not the hero, Jonah, and one who is God. On the one hand, we have Jonah and Jonah's anger. On the other, we have God who is concerned, God who is a God of compassion. And God's compassion leads to God's command for Jonah to speak a message of salvation. And Jonah's utter lack of compassion leads to his disobedience to God's command. Now we have a set of facts that are not disputed by either God or Jonah. First, both agree, rightly, that Nineveh is a wicked place with wicked wicked people. Second, the fact that God is mighty enough to save is not disputed. Jonah knows that He has seen that toward Israel. He has experienced that personally on a number of levels, including his salvation from the mouth of the great fish. And third, both God and Jonah know that God has compassion to save. Jonah's confession about this in verse 2 is a beautiful one. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But his next confession, in verse 3, is an ugly one. The beautiful confession of worship of the character of God becomes the root of complaint and condemnation. O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah wants God to be quicker to anger, and slower to love and compassion toward the Ninevites. So we have a God of compassion. We have a prophet of condemnation and anger. In verse 1, we read that God's compassion on the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. More literally, we could translate the Hebrew as it made him boiling mad And to him, it, what God had done, was a great evil. Now chapter 3 shows how the pagans had just gotten rid of their evil, the very same word used here. But Jonah now labels God's compassion as evil. Now, before we talk about all kinds of terrible things about Jonah, and rightly so, um, I want to voice a note of encouragement about him and about us as well, especially if you feel uh, a bit like Jonah, like I do. Now, all of the terrible things that we know about Jonah and his anger and even his complaints and his condemnation of God's compassion as evil, we come to know of because of Jonah, He's likely the author of this book or the primary source, and Jonah doesn't hold back. So let's give Jonah some credit and some appreciation. And also, let's give God glory and thanks. That it's very possible that God, as a gracious and compassionate God that Jonah complained about, that he showed that grace, he showed that compassion undeservedly to Jonah once again, sometime after chapter 4. And Jonah's heart was changed. And Jonah was able to relate this whole story with an honest portrayal of his own shameful part that no one else would have known about and thankful testimony to God's compassion, both to the Ninevites and also to him. So if your identification with Jonah today makes you feel a bit hopeless, Uh, please find encouragement that God's arm is not too short to use a person like Jonah for his great purposes, nor too weak to turn a heart like Jonah's or yours or mine around. And it was, without a doubt, a very, very hard heart. Jonah, as I said, was boiling mad. Now, anger is incredibly instructive Uh, it can help us to see uh, the orientation of our minds and of our hearts and for jonah anger reveals a few things first of all and most importantly his anger flowed from a failure to grasp the reality of the depth of the grace of god god had shown incredible compassion to Jonah in so many ways he boasts about those blessings to the sailors I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven he had experienced the merciful salvation of God he was most blessed to be a prophet of the living God and even blessed momentarily with the relief of the shade of a plant spread by the very hand of God over his head Now, this scene with this plant, this vine, is, is very interesting. Um, it shows how incredibly creative God is in, in his teaching, very similar, reminiscent of the ways that Jesus would, te- was, would teach when he was here on earth uh, using the image of a coin to answer a luring question about taxes, or multiplying food for the thousands, or cursing a fruitless fig tree that withers from the roots. And this is really kind of a comical scene. It's a, it's a little bit like football on Sundays. Um, Jonah pulls up a chair. He's expecting his team to lose. But he's hoping for a miracle still. Jonah can't not watch. Watch. He fears that God is going to do what he says he will and have compassion on the Ninevites and not destroy them. But Jonah is still holding out hope for destruction. So he sits there and he waits. And then the hand of God moves and grows a vine to give shade to Jonah's hot head. Literally and figuratively. And again, comically, Jonah is very happy. (laughs) But then God provides a worm that chews down the vine that God also had provided. And God provides even more, a scorching east wind, a blazing sun. And for a second time, Jonah says, I'm so angry that I could die. And this is very ironic. Jonah is boiling mad and ready to die from his anger at a God who made him, loved him, saved him, called him, commanded him, and forgave him even when he was disobedient to his command, all because God made others, loved others, desired to save others and call others and command others and forgive others. Others. Jonah finally shows some concern for something perishing other than himself. But pitifully, it is just for a plant. A vine that he neither planted nor cared for, but merely selfishly used for his own comfort. And he's just as angry at God for that, ready to die, as Jonah was at God's compassion upon the Ninevites. A people that God made and cared for, and to whom he extends the offer of forgiveness. Again, Jonah failed to grasp the reality of the depth of the grace of God. Anger is incredibly instructive. And anger is also incredibly destructive. And it can twist our minds and our hearts so much that we can fail to grasp reality clearly. And that was true with Jonah and the vine. It's personally very ironic for me to preach on this chapter about Jonah because... Um, I have very much identified with Jonah. Uh, my father's name was not always Osanggu, a Korean name. As a child growing up during the Japanese occupation of Korea, he was born with the name Matsuyama Hideo. And if he used his Korean name or spoke Korean, uh, he would be beaten. And then many years later, uh, his son was called by God to be a missionary among the people that he had been taught to hate. We talk about the horrors of the Holocaust when Nazi Germany killed 6 million Jews. According to historian Chalmers Johnson, the Japanese slaughtered as many as 30 million Vietnamese, Filipinos, Cambodians, Indonesians, Koreans, and Chinese. There was a Holocaust in Asia, But no one seems to have even noticed. Women were impregnated by soldiers and doctors, their bellies sliced open, their babies removed, and then tested upon, leading to their deaths. Nazi scientists who visited Japanese medical experimentation vomited from the horror of what they saw. It should come then as no surprise that the, peop- the question that people most often asked us about our mission work was, why Japan? Of all the places in the world, why would a Korean person choose Japan? The answer that I often gave was quite simply, Jesus said, love your enemies. Uh, I went to Japan with a uh, conviction to love an unreached people. And the conviction to very practically love my enemies. Uh, Many applauded my convictions, but I also went to Japan as a self righteous missionary with a latent bitterness toward the people that the Lord had called me to love. Uh, My PhD dissertation at Penn focused on the occupation, uh, the Japanese occupation of Korea. Uh, it, was, it was a torturous process in many ways, uh, and my bitterness grew more and more, and my self-righteousness became uglier and uglier. And, and as a leader of a seminary, there was a danger of turning unrighteous young people into self-righteous leaders, of taking younger prodigal sons and daughters and training them to be self-righteous older ones. Uh, But the Lord was incredibly patient and gracious to me, Uh, and so were my beloved Japanese brothers and sisters. Uh, I consider it one of the greatest honors of my life to have served side by side with them. And a true turning point was the confession of my self-righteousness at the 2009 Urbana Mission Conference in front of 18,000 people. So it won't surprise you that I've often felt in my own mission work that I was just like Jonah, uh, the reluctant prophet. But I think it became clearer and clearer to me over the years that I wasn't just a reluctant prophet, but again, I was, like Jonah, a self-righteous prophet. But I want the flaws of Jonah and myself and the God who overcomes flawed servants to be an encouragement to us all today. If God can use Jonah, he can use you, and he can use me. Now, coming back to Jonah, we can, we can kind of picture him sitting there in his uh, stadium seat, um, holding his beer or Hawaiian punch. With a front row seat. Waving a sign that says something like, No mercy to the Ninevites. Hoping to see some blood. Jonah the prophet has become a spectator. He had done his minimal obedience, if we can even call it that. He barely walks himself into the city. He preaches what may have been a partial message. And for all we know, he may have even mumbled the message as well. His was probably the shortest sermon ever delivered, and yet it had possibly the greatest fruit that the world had ever seen. God works. God works. Despite us, God works. And he can work through you. And we start as the Church of Jesus Christ as we pray to the Lord of the Harvest in sending forth missionaries to the front lines, especially toward reaching the unreached peoples of the world. At the first Lausanne Congress in 1974, mission history changed as Ralph Winter went up there and shared about people groups and unreached people groups, nearly 17,000 of them, that had little to no opportunity to ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Distinct ethnolinguistic people groups. The Sheikh people of Bangladesh are the largest unreached people group in the world. The second largest are the Japanese. Uh, the next three largest are all in India. And these should be a focus for us in our global mission. Uh, Where else can we focus our global mission strategy? First, I believe that we can and we should target countries with the smallest percentage of Christians as well. That would be Maldives, Morocco, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Secondly, we can and we should target the uh, countries with the most unreached individuals. Uh, 10 nations are home to 75% of the unreached individuals on earth. And that would be India, Pakistan, China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Japan, Iran, Turkey, Thailand, and Nepal. It's a great way for us to be focusing our prayers. God has called us. What is his vision for us? To be a house of prayer for all nations. I ask you. Is this a house of prayer for all nations? Is your home a house of prayer for all nations? And thirdly, we can and we should target the countries with the largest numbers of unreached people groups, and that would be India. More than 2,000 unreached people groups are in India alone, than China, Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh. God is Passionately compassionate toward these peoples. Not just 120,000 people like Nineveh, but billions who have little or no opportunity to ever hear the good news about a God of compassion. So besides sending missionaries, what are some of our domestic and local opportunities for gospel outreach, specifically to the unreached? Um, There are about 4 million Students from nations around the world who are studying in other nations, about 1 million here in the United States. This is a huge mission opportunity in our backyard that is largely ignored or neglected. 3,600 students from Bangladesh, again the largest unreached people group in the world, study in the U.S. More than 18,000 students from Japan, the second largest at UPG. 42,000 students are here from Saudi Arabia, more than 90,000 from India, Globally, international students may double by the year 2025. And this brings us to a related strategy and opportunity of diaspora. Diaspora. Uh, Lausanne has given a lot of attention to this concept and this mission strategy uh, the more than 230 million people of the world who are either voluntarily or involuntarily residing outside of the country of their birth. And this is a massive missional orchestration by God. One of the most massive opportunities to share the gospel in world mission history. According to uh, Asbury Seminary President Tim Tennant, also the Lausanne uh, Theology Working Group former chair, he said 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians. That's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. This group that we want to keep out is actually the group that we most need for spiritual transformation. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. What is this church's strategy for reaching immigrants how will God use us? For international students, the number the number one hope and 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 kind of dream of their time studying in the United States is what? Entering into an American home. It's the number one thing that all international students want. of them will never step foot into a home while they are in America. Open your home. Open your home. Lay out a feast in front of them. Feed them. Invite them to your home. Let them see your hearts. And their hearts will be opened. And they will understand that there is a God of compassion who is known in this house. Did you know that the majority of convenience stores in New York City are owned by Yemenis? Yemen is a very difficult place to be a missionary. Um, I have a family member who served there for years. Missionaries are not allowed in Yemen anymore. Uh, Believers are imprisoned in Yemen. We We should pray for Yemen. But we can also easily engage with Yemenis in New York City, or Oakland, California, or Dearborn, Michigan convenience stores. How convenient. Could God have made it any more convenient for us? Saudi Arabia is a very difficult place to be a missionary. We should send missionaries to Saudi Arabia, but we should also reach out to the 42,000 students from Saudi Arabia who are in the United States. If you bump into a Muslim student in America, they are most likely Saudi. These opportunities are unprecedented. What if every single member of this church made one friend with an international per year? It would transform your ministries. You never know what God might want to do. At a Lausanne Diaspora Forum in Manila, uh, one friend was sharing about ministering among an ethnic group in West Africa known for their sorcery. They ended up not being able to stay in the country after being medically evacuated twice. Um, During their entire time in West Africa, among this people group, they never met a single Christian. There's no church among these people. And the missionary ends up in New York City, where he meets someone from the very same ethnic group. And he was so excited, and he, said, and, and he was even more excited then to find that the West African man who had a Muslim background was now a follower of Christ. The first one he had ever met. That man fled to New York because his people had been trying to kill him because of his faith for 22 years. That man said to the missionary, he said, it's it's a miracle that I met you today because for all these years I felt called to be an evangelist to my people, but I've never known how. And the missionary said to him, I know it's a miracle because for all these years I've wanted to see that first church started among your people, but I didn't know how I could be a part. The first time that they went back together, they shared the gospel with over 100 people. Today, there are now 40 believers in that village. Several churches have been started. And it all began with a friendship between a missionary and a West African man, both stuck in New York City. In our cities, we are literally surrounded by opportunities to show compassion, especially to aliens and strangers from foreign lands. Uh, And your attitude, our attitudes toward them range, may range anywhere from, from eager to connect, to apathy, to complete ignorance, to annoyance, to outright contempt. And for all of us, wherever our hearts are, wherever they have been, no doubt Jonah is instructive. Jonah wants God to be slow to anger and quick to love and compassion for himself and for his own people, only. And in some sense, aren't we all that way? Isn't that a part of our human nature? But as I mentioned earlier, God showed incredible compassion toward Jonah, and that included the circumstances of his birth as a Hebrew. But Jonah failed to receive that unique blessing with a heart of thanksgiving and a life that was properly responsive and rightly compassionate towards others. Now, one of the wonderful dynamics of the gospel, of the good news blessing, is that it is, it's not a zero-sum gain. It's not limited in quantity. We don't have less blessing and less of the gospel if we share it with others, if we give it away. We actually have more. We have a deeper understanding of the gospel. And as we give it away, we actually have more of it. You don't need to be conservative with your sharing of the blessing of the gospel. We should, like God, be abundantly, abundantly liberal with it. Uh, To close, let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered for a moment the absolute mercy and blessing that you were born into your circumstances? You just as easily could have been born in the slums of Mumbai or as a son of a Shinto priest in Nagoya, Japan. And if you had been born in the slums of Mumbai or as a son of a Shinto priest, how would you want the people in this room to respond? Let's pray. God of compassion, we worship you and we thank you that while we were still sinners, oh God, you reached down to us. While we were still your enemies, you showed compassion to us and you continue to show compassion to your church in all of our stubbornness, in all of our brokenness, in all of our resistance. Would you sanctify your church, O God? Would you continue to grow us? And would you give us a vision, O God, to see with eyes of compassion, your eyes, those around us, those near and those far. And would you grant us grace, O Lord, and courage and strength, persevering love to reach out to those we see. We thank you, Father, that you love this world. And you so loved it that you gave your one and only son. Help us to so love this world that you love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.